You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 38. Genesis 38. On Wednesday nights, as we're continuing Wednesday night on Facebook Live, uh, we've been going through Romans chapter 8. And uh, as we go into green, we're, we're still deciding exactly what all this is going to still look like. Hopefully we'll have more information this week. I don't know how much more, but we'll have more <laughs> to some degree uh, this week. Um, but even as we've been working through this section in Genesis that's been focusing on the life of Joseph, uh, we've already referenced Romans 8, 28 and 29. And again, this is what those verses say, Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the that he might be the firstborn of the preeminent one among many brothers. This is a a greatly loved passage. And as we do see here that God works in all things, all things, without any qualifier on those all things. And even as we we go through that chapter and we see all the things that Paul talks about there in Romans 8. Uh, We've already talked about the struggle with sin, right? And we talked about those who have no condemnation now that they are in Christ Jesus. And it's those who who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That those who have their minds set on the flesh, that that leads to death. But it's, it's those with the mind that is set on the things of the Spirit that lead to life. As we pick up the text this coming Wednesday, we'll talk about putting our sin to death. And you know all the other things that Paul goes through there and sorrow and, and, and grief and, and trials that are in that chapter shows us all the more, I think, that there is no qualifier when Paul says that God works all things for good. And granted, for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, so specifically for those whom God has saved, for those whom God has made his own through Jesus Christ, we can hold on to that promise. We can know God's sovereignty in every situation, including the situations that are as a result of our sin, including even our sin itself. That God is working in those things to make us more like Christ, to glorify Him. You know, we've discussed, going through this story of Joseph, we've discussed about God's sovereignty. Again, this series is entitled, The Sovereign God in the Ups and Downs. And we talked about in the opening of this series that we'll see in chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph explained to his brothers that what they did, what they did was meant for evil. You meant it for evil, he'll say, but God meant it for good. God had purposed in what had transpired for the good. And now as we continue here in the narrative, and as we pick it up, we actually start to read about not Joseph, but Judah. 
And we see all the sinful things he did. And even then we continue to see God had a plan and God had a purpose in it all. And we can know and understand this for ourselves. We can rest assured that we ourselves and what we do, we can't thwart God's plan. We can't get in the way of what God is doing because he is sovereign and he is using all things, even the things that we do. Even our failures, even our sin. Now, for some, then, that might be a reason to say, well, then I should just keep on sinning, right? If God's going to use my sin, (laughs) why stop sinning? I should just do what my flesh wants to do. But no, that's how the false convert thinks about this. But when we have the work of the Spirit in us, instead, he brings us to the realization that God's grace, again, as we see elsewhere, is not a license for sin, but God's grace motivates us all the more to see how great he is, how worthy he is of us living our lives for him, how worthy he is of us laying down our lives, trusting him, obeying him, and pursuing holiness more and more, that we see just how great this God truly is. He would use even my sin for my good. That good, according to Romans 8, 28 and 29, which is to make me more like Christ. To grow me in holiness. How great is this God? How awesome is he? So as we pick up the text here this morning, as I've already mentioned, the shift moves from Joseph to Judah. And so for many, this seems very out of place. They don't understand why uh, this other story is inserted here when we've been talking about Joseph. And so some say, well, we should just skip this. I mean, especially for us. I mean, we're focusing on the life of Joseph, so maybe it's just better to skip this chapter and move on. But the problem with that is clearly Moses had a purpose in talking about Judah here. Clearly there's a reason that this is here, and clearly there's a reason specifically that he inserted it right at this point in the narrative as well. Moses had a reason for it. And I think on closer examination, we see that this really plays a very integral role in the narrative. Remember, too, as we discussed two Sundays ago, that this really isn't a narrative of Joseph that we've been going through. Really, it's the second half of the narrative of Jacob. When we opened up this series, looking at chapter 37, in verse 2 we read, these are the generations of Jacob. And so it shouldn't cause us any unrest to see the focus shift from one son of Jacob to another. But again, Moses purposed in it being here, in being in this section right here as well. One thing that I, I think is true and that many have suggested, and that the focus shifting to Judah seems to cause suspense in the story, as Moses is writing. And we left off seeing Joseph sold into slavery, sold as a slave into Egypt, and sold not just to any old person, but a very important person there in Egypt, the captain of the palace guard. And as he's there, and and just picture yourself of someone who's never heard the story before. As someone who's reading it afresh, you see Joseph sold off into Egypt. You're wondering, well, what's going to happen to Joseph? What trouble is he going to find himself in next? Uh, What's going to take place there in, in this mighty man's house, Potiphar's house? What's going to happen? And instead of Moses jumping right into the events that take place there in Potiphar's house... 
he moves on to something else and just lets the story hang there. He doesn't tell us. Also, in placing the focus on Judah here, Moses shows a contrast between Joseph and Judah. Uh, We're going to see here Judah act with callousness and, and immorality, as opposed to the integrity and pure actions of Joseph in the next chapter when he's faced with temptation. There's a contrast here between these two brothers. And lastly, most, at least of those who I have read, and I, I agree, see that this focus on Judah serves to explain the change that we see in Judah later on in the narrative. So far, we have seen Judah act selfishly and jealously. He's been a callous brother, indignant towards his younger brother, Joseph. Seeing it better than killing his brother and just ending up with blood on their hands. Seeing it better than just leaving their brother to rot in a sister. And they thought, well, he thought we might as well make some money off of him. We might as well benefit somehow, as little as it might be. And so we have an opportunity to sell him because remember, uh, these Ishmaelites, this, this caravan uh, of merchants just happens to be coming by. And again, one pastor points out that not only do these merchants just happen to be coming by at just the right time, but they also are just happen to be going down to Egypt as opposed to be coming up from Egypt. Uh, they happen to be going right where God wanted to put Joseph. And again, we talk, there, there's no such thing as happenstance. It's all the workings of God's providence, working out his purposes and his will. But Judah was the mastermind in selling him as a slave. And then Judah was at least complicit in the deceit of their father in leading him to believe that their brother Joseph had been torn to pieces by a wild animal. Yet later we will read of a brother who cares for his youngest brother. Joseph was a younger brother, but we'll see his care for his youngest brother, Benjamin, even though Benjamin had become the new favorite of their father. And we see him care about his father's pain and feelings. We see a change. And so with this shift in focus, we see the importance of it here to the narrative. And so we we don't want to just skip over it. Now, we should understand, too, what we are reading here this morning happens over a a vast period of time. When Joseph was sold as a slave, he was about 17 years old. In chapter 45, when Jacob and all his family go down into Egypt, at that point, Joseph is 39. And so it's in this 22-year span of time that the events in chapter 38 take place. Which also means then that that there's this chronological overlap. As we start reading about Judah and the focus on his life, and then we pick up the text again with Joseph there in Potiphar's house, uh, there's that that overlap. And so we want to recognize that. Now, too, just one more little tidbit of information so that we have the right background and the right context to what's going on here. There was this thing called leveret marriage. If a husband died without any children, then one of his brothers was to marry his widow And the children that they had together would then be considered the legal heirs of the dead husband. And so these would be the ones to carry on the name of the deceased. Now, this was a common practice in the ancient Near East. 
a widow at that time was in grave danger of of a lot of things, not the least of which would be poverty and, and her economic status. And so she would need a provider. And for a woman that lived with her father, that provision came from her father's home. But when she was married, then that provision came from her husband's household. And so then when her husband died, if that was the case, and she was left childless, uh, to have that protection and that provision, she would then marry within her husband's household. And in the practice of the ancient Near East, uh, the husband who died, his father would also be in line, would be eligible to act as that uh, surrogate father for those children. Now, as I understand the practice in the ancient Near East, when we come to God's law given through Moses, we do see this idea of leveret marriage, but it's a more sanctified version of this leveret marriage. But the thing is, though, we need to remember, when Moses was writing this, he was writing it at the time that he's writing the books of the law. And so, for the events that he's talking about and writing down, the law hadn't been given to his people yet. And so what we see them practicing is what was the common practice of the day. But the text does make it clear how God does feel about a man providing for the widows in his household. And it makes it clear how God feels about one taking care of the widow and providing for one's deceased brother. It's very clear in the text. So let's let's go to Genesis 38 and let's, let's read through this chapter as we jump into it here. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah... Shua's daughter died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, and he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enname, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. 
he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the people, the men of the place, where is the colt prostitute who was at Enam, at the roadside? And they said, no colt prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no colt prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by her immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor... One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on the hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterwards his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, as we get into this text... The passage starts out by Joseph separating, or, yeah, Judah, excuse me, separating himself from his family. And verse 1 says this, it happened at that time. And so that connects it back to where we left off last time with Jacob mourning the supposed death of his son Joseph and not being able to be comforted by his sons and daughters. So whether Judah was maybe struggling seeing his father suffer like he was, or, or maybe feeling the weight of guilt by being the mastermind behind selling him into slavery, or, or whether he was just fed up with seeing his father continue to mourn his one son when he had these 11 other sons, whatever it may have been, there was clearly some kind of falling out because families usually remained together at that time. And so this leaving shows that something was wrong. So he goes with a, Ledu- a Dulamite named Hira. And he settled there with the Canaanites. Now, that right there should be setting off alarms for us. Especially if we've read through the patriarchs in Genesis here up to this point. Especially as we read that not only did Judah settle with the Canaanites, but he married a Canaanite woman. God had set Abraham and his descendants apart. Because he was setting them apart for his purposes. 
When we read uh, John D. Street's, what he says in his book, Passions of the Heart, he says, by living among the Canaanites and marrying their women, Judah imperiled the Abrahamic line. The Canaanite religion threatened to absorb the descendants of Abraham and obliterate the lineage of the Messiah. You know, we learn as we read through Genesis here that Abraham and Isaac, they made sure not to have their sons marry Canaanite women. So if Abraham's descendants begin to do this, they they risk losing being distinguished from the people. Again, God set them apart. But this people whom God set apart and setting apart is what it means to be holy, they weren't living holy. And we see that as we read through the things Judah did. He certainly was not living holy. But again, Judah marries this Canaanite woman has two sons by her, and then he has a third son while he was in Kezib. The oldest son's name was Ur, next was Onan, and the youngest was Shelah. And then we're told that Judah, obviously when Ur became of age, he found a wife for her, presumably among the Canaanite women again, and her name was Tamar. And verse 7 says this, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, what exactly was his wickedness? It doesn't say. And how did the Lord put him to death? I don't know. It doesn't say. But he died having no children. It does say that. And so verse 8 tells us that Judah told his next son, Onan, that he should do his duty for his deceased brother and raise up children with his brother's widow, and so continue his brother's line. But that would mean that the children would not be Owens legally. And the inheritance from Judah would go to those children as if they were the son of Judah's firstborn. But if his brother was still considered childless, then Onan and his sons would receive the inheritance as if Onan was the firstborn. So Onan would do what he had to do to make sure that he had no children by his brother's widow. Now, we said before, we know how God feels about this. And we know how God feels about his selfish pursuits, about his not caring about his brother's inheritance, but only caring about his own and not caring about his brother's name. We know because verse 10 says, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. So these two brothers of Judah have been killed by the Lord because of their wickedness. These deaths were immediately linked to their sin. Now, In saying that, we should understand that the only reason we know that is because the text tells us. Matter of fact, at least as far as Onan is concerned, we know Judah doesn't make that connection. He doesn't understand that this is why his son died. We only know it because the text tells us. And so we should understand that this doesn't mean that every sickness and every death and all of these things are always a direct correlation to someone's personal sin. I mean, ultimately, all suffering, all death is because of sin. As, as Adam sinned and brought sin into the world, and as each one of us are sinners, the consequence of sin is pain, suffering, and death. And so, in a sense, the ultimate consequence of sin is all of these things. But to a person's life, person's individual life, there's not always that one-to-one correlation, and, and, and we, we just don't know. We, we can't make that judgment. That's even too, when it comes to prosperity. A person's prosperity isn't necessarily because of one's faith and obedience. 
We don't know all of the workings of God and why he allows the different things he allows and, and what he is doing in each one's individual life and their individual circumstances. I mean, I think we see that very well, even as we've been talking about Joseph thus far. And as we'll continue to talk about Joseph, obviously the ups and downs in his life were not in correlation to his obedience or disobedience at all. But it was in correlation to what God was doing for his purposes in Joseph's life, to the ends that God was bringing about. So we need to understand that. And verse 11 says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, was Shelah not yet of marrying age? I don't know. Um, What seems to be the timeline of the events through the narrative would suggest that Judah had his sons in quite the uh, rapid succession. So if Shelah was not yet of marrying age, Tamar probably only had to wait another year or maybe a little more until he would have been. But clearly, that wasn't really Judah's motive anyway. Uh, Verse 11 shows that very blatantly. Judah really was motivated by the fear that Shelah would die like his brothers. Because, see, when a woman had more than one husband and her husbands died, that marked her with a certain stigma in that day. That she was seen as someone who was evil, And so, with this superstitious idea, they thought, well, there's some kind of curse on her husbands, and that's why they keep dying. But, you know, we see Judah had a responsibility for the widow in his household. But Judah was more superstitious than he was faithful. And so he had no plans of giving Shelah to Tamar. But again, as we see all this, And we see the light that this and really the whole chapter shows Judah in. It's not a very good light, and it only gets worse as the chapter goes on. We have to remember, again, that God did not choose the nation of Israel because of how great their descendants were. Again, God didn't choose Israel because of anything about them, even as he didn't choose us because of anything about us. His choosing is always because of how great he is. It's all about him. We've got to remember that. So, with this being the circumstance, what else can Tamar do but go back to her father's house? For Judah, this way, he can see that she's provided for without taking the responsibility of providing for her himself. Now, as she returns to her father's house, later, it seems to be implied that this does not remove her from Judah's authority. uh, That she's still considered part of his household, and we'll see that in a little bit. But as we come to verse 12, we see quite a bit of time has passed, and Judah has yet to give Shelah to Tamar as a husband. Now, what we do see here in this passing of time is that Judah's wife dies. And when he had finished mourning for his wife, he heads to Timnah with his friend Hira to get his sheep sheared. Well, Tamar clearly concludes that her father-in-law has no intention of giving her to his son. And so, remaining without children, she concocts this plan. Again, remember, the ancient Near East practice had it that the father-in-law of the widow was in line for leveret marriage. And so, this is probably motivating her thinking. 
And so she takes off her clothes of widowhood, and she dresses like a temple prostitute. And that would include a veil, which was perfect for her, because for this plan that she concocts, she would need to hide her identity. And so she sits and waits at the entrance of Anaim, which was on the road to Timnah. And Judah sees her. And Judah takes the bait. And he propositions her. And she had a well-thought-out plan. She asked for payment. And he offers her a goat that he would send later. But if he's going to send it later, well, I want to guarantee that I'm going to get this goat. He says, well, what do you want? And so, I want your signet and the cord that you use to hang it around your neck. And I want your staff. And as many point out, leaving these things would be much like us today leaving our credit card and our driver's license. The signet was made of wax, and it was used to make an imprint, which would be equivalent today to us making, writing our signature. And the staff would have markings on it, or maybe even Judah's name, that would designate this as Judah's. And so it was an identification, and that's how it was used. So Judah gives her these things. Afterwards, Tamar returns to her widow's clothes, and Judas and Hira to make good on the payment, but he can't find this prostitute. He asks around, and they say, well, there's been no temple prostitute here. So he tells Judah this, and Judah tells him to give up on the search because he doesn't want to be made a laughing stock. And probably, too, he's figuring, well, you know, I, I tried. But three months pass. And three months is just enough time that after playing the harlot, it, could be, it would be evident that Tamar was with child. And so word is brought to Judah that Tamar has been promiscuous and therefore is with child. Now, some suggest that Tamar herself leaked the information to Judah because for her plan to work out, Judah would have to find out. And what's Judah's response? Well, we read it here at the end of verse 24. It says, And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. That's harsh. Burning is a horrific death. Now, this is this, the, the penalty for the disgrace that Judah's calling for. Judah's saying she should be burned for what she's done. Completely missing what he did just three months ago. That if she deserves to be burned, then who else deserves to be burned? Judah. Now, also, too, this is what shows that he still had authority over her as the widow in his household, even though he sent her back to her father. In verse 25, it says, As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And just like that, Judah's hypocritical self-righteousness is deflated. He recognized these are his. So he immediately understood who the father was. And it's here in this moment we see something in Judah that we have not yet seen. As he's confronted, even in a public way, with his sin, we see humility and we see a confession of guilt. Not only was he the father but also he knew that if he had just did what was his responsibility to take care of Tamar, none of this would have happened. 
And so we read there in verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Not that she was righteous, what she did wasn't right either. But he's saying more righteous than I, or could say she's more justifiable than I. For however wicked it was, the things that she did, I am more wicked. He says, since I did not give her to my son, he says, and he did not know her again. So he doesn't burn her. But just think, his immediate response to hearing about her evil was that she should be burned. She should be destroyed. Again, missing his own compliancy in the whole thing. How easy is it for us to be aware of someone else's sin and what we think they deserve, completely missing our own sin and what we deserve? How easy it is for to proclaim judgment on someone else when all the while we are culpable as well? I think it's probably safe to say that each and every one of us have had to, at some point, repent of such hypocrisy. And we should be always searching our own hearts that we would not have that hypocrisy, that we should not be trying to get the speck of someone else's eye while the whole while we have this huge log sticking out of our own eyes. To be blind to our own, willfully blind to our own sin. And part of pointing someone else's sin out very often can be all the more trying to avoid our own sin. Saying here that it that he did not know her again probably indicates that he never married her and clearly never had relationships with her like this again. And the chapter ends with Tamar giving birth to not just one boy, but twins. Again, these are Judah's sons. And it's an unusual birth. One hand emerges and the, the midwife ties a scarlet thread around the hand, but then that hand recoils back into the wound and the other child is actually born first. And so that child is named Perez, which means breached or breakthrough. And the one with the thread on his wrist is born and his name is Zara, which may possibly mean brilliance or could possibly mean scarlet, maybe referring to that thread. But as far as Leverett marriage goes, these children were the descendants of Judah's oldest son, Ur. Legally, that's what they would have been considered. And we see in all of this, Judah is the one who produces heirs for his own son. That Judah made careless and wicked decisions. Decisions that, decisions that could uh, jeopardize the promises to Abraham. And yet, really, the truth of the matter is, nothing really could thwart the plan of God. Nothing could get in the way. God was sovereign over everything, even Judah's sin. Using everything for his purposes. What was wicked and evil in Judah's intentions, God intended it for good. Right? I mean, that's the overarching message of this narrative, right? And we discussed that at the beginning of this series. What man intends for evil. Whatever evil that we see even around us. Just turn on the news. Just turn it on for five minutes and you'll be four minutes and 30 seconds into the wickedness of mankind in the world. And even in all of that and all of those things that are sin and that man intends for evil, God intends for good. 
And so you and I, as the followers of the one true God, of the sovereign God, we should not ever be given over to fear and panic. We are to trust in the sovereign will of our good God. And trust in his sovereign will even when we're confronted with our own sin. Even when we know the shame and disgrace of the things that we have done. When the wicked and evil intents of our own heart are revealed. We know that he's sovereign even in these things. In our shame and in the weight of our guilt, uh, we can count ourselves as useless for God's kingdom. We can, at least in our own minds, draw ourselves uh, as, as being marked by the scarlet letter and resign ourselves to never being used by God again. But first off, if you have placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, if you recognize your sin and recognize what you deserve from the Holy God, His punishment and eternal wrath, yet you know God sent His Son, Jesus of Nazareth, He who is God who took on full humanity, He who is holy God and so lived a holy life as a man, to stand in your place, to receive God's wrath while He poured out His blood and sacrificed His life on the cross in your place. If you know He rose again, and so you know that your sin has been dealt with past, present, and future once and for all, if you know these things, if you know your right standing in God before God is in Christ, then my friends, you can know, one, your sin is forgiven, your sin is wiped away. And you can know the promises of God in working in all things for good. You can know the promises of God of using even your sin to accomplish His purposes in your life. How kind, how gracious, how good is this God that He would even use our sin to glorify Himself? He who has not counted our sin against us who believe but is counted against Christ in our place. What mercy and grace He has shown, and yet what mercy and grace He continues to show. That He would use all things for His purposes to grow us in holiness, to make us more like Christ, to glorify Christ with our lives. When we think about just what mercy and grace, I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. This is how great our God is, how incredibly worthy He is of our praise and worship, how worthy He is of us laying down our lives to His service and giving Him our full trust and obedience. I mean, look at Judah. Look at all the choices he made. That from a human perspective could have been devastating to the promises of Abraham. He didn't care also, too, for the widow in his household. And he sought out a prostitute. Yet God takes his foolish actions and ends up perpetuating Abraham's ascendance. And he specifically does this with his son Perez. You know, and as it goes on and we see Judah's humility and the evidence of the change in him as you go on through the narrative and, and now uh, where before he didn't care about his brother Joseph, now he's willing to even lay down his life, uh, give his life as a substitute for his father's new favorite son, Benjamin. And we see God brings Judah to be a prominent figure and be in a prominent position among the patriarchs, 
when Jacob is blessing his sons towards the end of this narrative, we'll see that Judah, it's from him, will come royalty. God is using all of these things, working in Judah, working for Judah, even in Judah's sin. And God works his will, his glory, his grace and kindness for us as well. I think another good illustration of this, as we think of Judah and we think of Perez, as we come to the New Testament, and we see that it's through Judah, through Tamar's son Perez, that God had made them a part of the lineage of Messiah. God used the situation to bring Messiah into the world. And there's more we can say about that, but we don't have time. But, but again, I think it illustrates just how God was using Judah, even in his sin, for his purposes. My friend, do you know the grace of God? If you, by faith in Christ, have the righteousness of God credited to you, as your sin was credited to Christ on the cross, then your sin has been forgiven. And you stand as righteous in God's sight. Christ took that guilt on himself. And it was such grace and mercy, Christ took that guilt on himself and paid for our sin. And yet God continues to show his grace and mercy in our lives. We cannot get in the way of what God is doing. We cannot thwart God's plans and purposes. How gracious is he? How kind is he? How amazing is our God? You know, like I said before, you know, this for some could trigger in their minds to say, well, then I might as well just keep on sinning, right? If God's going to use my sin, if, if he's going to show me such grace, why don't I just keep on sinning? But again, that, that's how the false convert thinks. The true believer sees God's grace and mercy not as a reason to continue to sin, but as a reason to put off their sin and serve this God because they see how worthy he is, how great he is, how glorious he is, how kind he has been to us. And we want to serve him. We love him in response to his love for us. And so our response is to lay down our lives, to give ourselves to serve this great God who is worthy, to pursue holiness in all that we do, in knowing him, trust him, and obey him. Because he is so great. Our God is so great. You see how great he is in all of his mercy and grace towards us. So let us respond in giving our lives completely to him in worship, in service, and obedience. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.